0: Every week, many of the world's 2.2 billion Christians in 41,000 different denominations attend one of approximately 3.7 million worship services, gatherings, or small group meetings. And they do for lots of reasons. I'd be interested to know, like, why you attend. Why do you bother setting aside time uh, every week or, or regularly to attend a worship service or a small group gathering. In fact, if you're so bold and would like to do it non-anonymously, you could put on the back of that Connect card that that Ruth uh, told you about just a, a second ago and jot down on the back the reason like that compels you to gather for worship. If you don't want to uh, let it be known, you can do it anonymously by just tearing off the front corner of your program and writing on the back, and we're not going to match handwriting. We, we're not going to outsource it to an analysis to see who said what. I'm just curious. Uh, I'd like to maybe compile them and post it on our um, internal website called The City, just to give you a an idea of the different reasons represented right here in this room. Some of us attend out of the holy habit of obedience, punctuating the rhythm of our regular weekly life with worship. Some To serve others in the church family with their gifts and their talents. Some of us desire to connect with friends or to establish a new community, especially if we're relocating or just moved to a a new town. Some of us desire to be equipped to minister more effectively to the least and the lost and last and the world around us. Some to provide training and equipping for our children or our grandchildren and still others are looking for help and hope. We want to grow and change. Now, this morning, we're launching a brand new series of sermons that we've titled, How Do We Grow? For the last five weeks, we've been challenged uh, to worship the living God in an everyday lifestyle of full surrender and obedience. And now, for the next five weeks, we want to discover how we can do that. How do we actually grow and change. Hopefully we'll be encouraged that uh, as we discover that Jesus can really change us and we we don't have to suffer the fate of of a, a lifetime of just kind of being who we've always been, that Jesus can offer hope. In fact, I've titled today's message, Jesus Offers Hope. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for uh, the life and breath and light of a brand new day at the start of a brand new week. For these gifts, we're thankful. Thank you for health. Thank you for soundness of mind. Thank you, Lord, for the capacity that we have to gather together here. We welcome you by your Holy Spirit to to join us, Lord, uh, to be powerfully present as we break the bread of life together, not just in this room, but right next door, Lord, uh, where our kids are learning and and growing and worshiping as well, uh, we pray that you'd be the honored guest and put power on your word to our lives where we need it the most in your name. Amen. Some of you know that I'm a fan of irreducible simplicity. that's where you actually drill things down to their uh, simplest form. Now, of course, there's always grave danger in oversimplifying complex issues. You know, how how does one reduce global hunger or pollution or the AIDS epidemic? How can you simply guarantee a thriving marriage or healthy, obedient children? But nevertheless, as as a designer, as an architect, as a builder, I like to think in terms of their simplest form and color and shape and texture and components. So in the spirit of irreducible simplicity, uh, In regards to growth and change, I like to think there are three variables. First, our life circumstances. Second, people or our relationships. And thirdly, ourselves, who we are, what we think, say, and do, and how we react. Now, we'll deal with two of these, circumstances and people, that really, apart from God's promises to move on our behalf, are largely, and in many ways, outside of our direct control. We'll deal with these in a sermon series, Lord willing, next year, titled, How Do Things Change? But in this series, we're going to be focusing our discoveries on how do we grow? How do things change? How do we grow? In his popular, best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the late Stephen Covey described the lesson of the circle of concern and the circle of influence. Imagine with me, if you can, all the things that happen and cause uh, us some degree of worry or concern on a daily basis. And you place those in what we identify or Covey identifies as the circle of concern. Life circumstances, people, our health, our children, our grandchildren, our job, the, the threat of, a, of another war in Syria, the failure of the state of Illinois to solve its pension problem, uh, the global food and water and AIDS crisis, religious intolerance and ethnic slaughter all around the globe. All the things that us some degree of concern. Now, if we're honest we can identify a number of the things within our circle of concern over which we have absolutely no control, right? And at the same time, we would identify a number of things over which we have at least some measure of control. And so Covey identifies within the circle of concern another smaller circle that he calls the circle of influence. And these are the areas where... Uh, with God's help, we can actually see most directly some degree of growth and change. Your emotions, your thoughts, your reactions, the levels of fear or worry or anxiety that you have, uh, your patterns of financial management or communication, your use of leisure time and recreation, addictions or hidden or secret sins or Patterns of behavior, the level of compassion that you have for other people. All those things are, in a a large part, within your ability to influence or control. Hence, in the circle of influence. They're the concerns that you can actually do something about. We grow and change by focusing our time and energy on the things that can actually change. Those things in the circle of influence. So you think about it this way. Of the three variables, the irreducible simplicity vari- simplistic variables about change, we find that two, life circumstances and people, or our relationships, lie largely in our circle of concern. The third variable, ourselves, who we are, what we think, say, and do, how we react in life, lies within the circle of influence, that is, in many ways, it's the most fertile field in which to cultivate growth and change. So that's where we'll be leaning in the next five weeks. Now, I understand that desiring growth and change may not be the primary reason that compels you to march or stumble in a hurried fashion into a worship service, a gathering, or a small group every week, like the point some odd other billion Christians. And, you know, some of us don't think we need to change at all. You like things the way they are. Hey, you know, life's good, school's good, job's good, family's good. Hey, you know, I might have a few shortcomings, but and, you know, I can always use a little extra money, right? But I don't really see anything major, so, you know, I don't really need to change. Others of us see maybe a little hope for change. We've kind of been stuck the way we are for so long, or we've seen so little change that we we have little hope that anything would be different moving forward. Still others of us have tried to change with little results. It's not for lack of trying, you know, God knows we've tried, maybe through New Year's resolutions, uh, setting goals, through prayer, confession, repentance, going to counseling, attending a small group, reading and studying our Bible, even fasting, by gosh, no luck. Some of us want to grow and change, but we just don't know what to do. Like What would actually the steps we take? You know, we'd love to see some things change. We'd love an everyday lifestyle of full surrender and obedience as a Christ follower, but we just don't know how to go about seeing those things actually change. Still others of us are actually experiencing right now a season of steady personal and spiritual growth, and we bless that. We just say, more, Lord, more. Now, you probably fall into one or more of those categories, depending on what day of the week it is. (laughs) So I'd like to just kind of drill down just a little further to help us all identify. Let me ask you a question. If you could grow in one area or change one thing about yourself, who you are, what you think, say, and do, and how you react, what would it be? Now, don't shout it out, but just for purposes of engaging us in the next five weeks. If you could grow in one area, or you could change one thing about yourself, who you are, what you think, say, and do, or how you react, what would it be? I suspect, if we're honest, that all of us have at least one thing that comes to our mind, And so that's encouraging to me because I know that I'm talking to all of us today. Now, as we begin to explore the answer to the question, how do we grow? I want to just be real clear right at the front about our presuppositions. You see, every system of thought in the world, astronomy, chemistry, architecture, art, religion, they all begin by taking certain things for granted. That is, all knowing of any kind begins with an act of faith. For instance, the development of science, as we know, would be impossible without the belief that the universe is rational. Now, this can't be factually proven. It's a presupposition. No Coherent thought about anything is possible without taking a few things as a given for granted. You have to have certain presuppositions. And I believe that's what is what is required for intelligent, honest, thoughtful discussion or preaching or teaching or communicating is that one should be as explicit as possible about what our presuppositions are. So for the Christian... There are two that I'm using in our series. The first is that Jesus is real. And secondly, that the Bible contains a true and accurate record of his life and ministry. To be sure, we cannot factually prove these two presuppositions. If you're brutally, intellectually honest, you can't prove either of those two presuppositions. We who are Christ followers actually believe that there is enough empirical and historical evidence that suggests they are factual. They are our presuppositions. Jesus is real. The Bible contains a true and accurate record of his life and ministry. But you know what? If you are prone to disagree or argue, there is no set of scientific data that the Christian can point to to convince you that that is the case beyond your ability to trust. At some point, you have to believe. You have to take a a, a step of of risk or faith. So just to be clear, right out of the get-go, I just want to let you know that our convictions in the vineyard are that 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus, uh, the divine human son of God, lived in Palestine, had an itinerant ministry, died and then rose again and ascended to God the Father. And his biography, as short and as incomplete as it is, is recorded in the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, everywhere Jesus went, the the biblical record shows that he employed simple stories. Today we call them parables where he communicated God the Father's inexhaustible, never-ending love for all people everywhere. Jesus taught that God is good, that he's a loving and merciful and faithful Father. Jesus offered hope to the hopeless. He encouraged uh, those who were oppressed by life and religious circumstances. He taught that God actually blesses those that are well, that our society considers on the outside, uh, the sinful, the weak, the poor, the marginalized, women, children, the mentally ill, the demonized, the handicapped, and the sick. God actually blesses them, and then Jesus proved that what he was saying was actually true. He proved it by what he did. He forgave sin. He called people back into relationship with God the Father. He met needs, healing the sick, uh, setting the demonized free, feeding the hungry, and uh, even raising the dead. Jesus launched this itinerant ministry with an announcement that's recorded for us by Dr. Luke. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can open up to Luke 4. We're going to be looking at several passages from the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, in succession. But uh, Luke 4, Jesus began this itinerant earthly ministry with this announcement. Luke 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me, or enabled me, to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Matthew, one of the other gospel writers, says in the ninth chapter of his uh, letter, uh, these words about Jesus, when he is capturing in a, in a single statement, kind of a sweeping summary of Jesus's itinerant ministry. Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues, Announcing the good news about the kingdom and he healed every kind of sickness, disease, and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus was and is good news. That's the word gospel, good news and we've seen in these two texts, that the arrival of his kingdom is a good thing. And so if Jesus or the kingdom of God is received as anything other than good news, then it's not the biblical good news. Jesus and his kingdom are good news. Jesus, the text said, had compassion on those of us who who were confused and helpless, wandering in life as a as a sheep without a shepherd. And it's interesting that Jesus often employed this metaphor. That's a figure of speech, uh, that we are, as his people, sheep, and that he is our shepherd. And he used it as an encouragement to actually help his people grow. So one such occasion uh, where he used this metaphor is recorded by the third gospel writer, John, in the 10th chapter, where we read these words. Verse 6, those who heard Jesus use this illustration of the sheep and the shepherd didn't understand what he meant. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep didn't listen to them. Yes, I'm the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They'll come and go freely and will find good pastures the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them, you, a rich and satisfying life. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. We skip down to verse 27. The end of that message, Jesus said, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish." No one can snatch them away from me for my father's given them to me and he's more powerful than anyone else. And then on yet one more occasion, Jesus used another metaphor, a different figure of speech for his followers. The 15th chapter of John where he said this in the fifth verse, yes, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch. It withers, and such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father." So Jesus is now illustrating the nature of our relationship, sheep, shepherd, vine, branches. And then kind of like in a another sweeping invitation, Matthew captures Jesus' language in the 10th or the 11th chapter, when Jesus concluded a sermon at the end of a very busy day of ministry, and Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. So now what do we see here in in these three or four texts? What is the good news that that Jesus taught and, and demonstrated? Well, the kingdom of God has come, that God's favor is now at hand, that he's the good shepherd, we are his sheep. He sacrifices his life for the sheep so that we can, in the language of John, have a rich and satisfying eternal life. The real life of God's kingdom. We've seen that He is the vine and we are the branches and that if we abide in Him, we can ask what we want and will bear fruit and bring God glory. And then Jesus invites all of us, if we are weary and heavy, a heavy burden, that He will actually give us rest. Freedom. So I like to summarize what Jesus is Announcing and declaring and proving in his good works this way. Jesus offers help for today and hope for tomorrow. Jesus is our answer. It's because of Jesus that we can grow and change. We don't have to stay the way we are. Jesus's invitations are sincere, and if we allow him to, he will invade our circle of influence as we trust him. We see this in the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, in Jesus's earthly ministry, in the accounts recorded for us by the gospel writers. We see it in the history of the church around the world. In the, in the previous two thousand years, we see it uh, the, the hope it, it, that hope in the biographies of the early church fathers, the saints in the Middle Ages, the figures in the church in the Reformation, and even the recent centuries, but God changes people. Jesus offers help and hope. And in the lives of our church family, this group that's gathered right here, seated right around you, to your left and to your right. Uh, uh I'm going to surprise both uh, Stephanie and Linda by reading um, a portion of the story that they wrote in, in preparation for our one-year anniversary just a few months ago. Linda, uh, sitting, sitting right here with her husband Randy, uh, writes, writes this, Over the last year, the Lord has brought us new revelations, more healing uh, in body, soul, and spirit, and more peace in our family. That's growth and change. Thanks for sharing. Stephanie writes this. This has been a a difficult season of hardship, but what God has done is to constantly remind me that he's with me. He's with me through every issue, through days of rain and days of sunshine. Learning the concept about living in the already and not yet of the kingdom has helped me put this into perspective. Thanks for sharing, Stephanie. That's powerful. And these are two among a hundred right here. Every one of you, no doubt, could could write in some way how Jesus, even if you didn't know that it was him who was helping, no doubt could say, God's made a difference in my life in this way. He's brought help. He's brought hope. I'd love to hear your stories. I'd love to read another dozen. Uh, If you're still space on your Connect card, you could even write that story out or post it on the city. I'd love to to hear your uh, story about how Jesus has brought you help and hope. Today, a, a quick search on Amazon.com for self-help titles produced, this week for me, 305,365 titles of books. From everything, from personal transformation to success, Happiness, self-esteem, stress management, creativity, time management, memory improvement, and many more. And no doubt, numbers of us would reap a degree of appreciable benefit from these strategies and these approaches. You know, they're not bad. They're selling books for a reason. But Christianity is not a self-help program. It's not about building a better you. (laughs) Christianity is Christ. It's about coming into a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus, who loves us unconditionally and receiving the help for today and the hope for tomorrow that he promises in his kingdom. That's what Christianity is. And so, just cut to the chase, irreducible simplicity, I like to think about it like this. If there were a very first principle for how do we grow, how do we change, it has to be this. In order to get from where we are to where we want to be, it has to be through Jesus. That's it. It has to be through Jesus. Coming to Jesus, Fully surrendering to Him and asking Him to cause us to grow and change into the followers that He wants us to be. No tricks, no hidden agenda, no five easy steps, no seven orderly paths to growth. It's just surrender and come to Jesus and ask Him for the help. And the beauty, the beautiful thing about the sovereignty, the bigness, largeness of God through the Holy Spirit who lives in each follower is that he can uh, create a personal development plan. Now, i got a daughter who's a teacher. Lori, you're a teacher. A number of you are a They have these things called IDPs. Is that what they're called? Individual development plans, IDPs. And what that is, is when a teacher or an administrator creates a custom-designed plan for personal growth and development for each of their students. And the beauty about the Holy Spirit is he can make an IDP for each one of you. It's not one template that the church lays over at the top of like, if you all do this program or you all follow this script, then you all grow to Christ likeness because each of us is unique. The Holy Spirit is the IDP maker. He, he can craft the plan as we submit, as we surrender, and as we trust Jesus for help and for hope to cause us to grow and change into the people he wants us to be. Now, on one occasion... Uh, Jesus was approached by Nicodemus. He was a teacher of the Jewish religious law. And we're going to wrap up today by looking at, at a few glimpses of hope from his story. John chapter three. He came to Jesus by night, perhaps because he didn't want anyone else to witness the exchange, or maybe he was just too busy with regular religious stuff to meet during the day. We don't know. He'd been observing Jesus in action for some time now, and he knew something was different. He said, "Well, master, we, we know you're from God because you do all this cool stuff." And I think what he was trying to say is, man, there, there is a powerful difference between the effect of your ministry and ours as a teacher of the law. I think he was comparing the results of his teaching and looked at, and reading of the law versus Jesus. And he saw that the law, religion, brought hopelessness and guilt and bondage. It was a heavy yoke. It was a burden that not many people could bear. Many of us have felt in various religious systems in which we were born and raised, God bless them all, but we felt like it was, oh, like life's hard, church shouldn't be. I mean, really, that's the philosophy of the vineyard, if you hadn't and you can quote me on that one. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out when people ask me, well, so what kind of church is the vineyard? If the conversation actually gets that far. I really don't know a great answer yet, but that's a good one. You know, life's hard church shouldn't be. The gospel is good news. Jesus is good news. And if what you're experiencing is not good, then it's probably not the gospel. Okay, that was a little sidebar for free, but, uh, <laughs> I got to think that Nicodemus just saw, week in, week out, as the people funneled into the synagogue and funneled out, he saw the hopelessness and the despair that more religion and more laws and more guilt produced, lifeless. And then he looked at Jesus, and everywhere Jesus went, there was life, and there was light, and there was hope. And there was healing and there was shouting and high fiving as people got healed and rejoiced in the, in the coming of God's kingdom. And I gotta think Nicodemus said like, I'm slow, but I'm not stupid. Something's different between mine and his ministry. Jesus told him in John three, three, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, more literally in the original language, born from above, you can't see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus replied, well, what do you mean? Like, how? He said, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be, like, born over again? And then Jesus explained, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans produce human life. That's the water. You're born in a bath of water, you've observed birth. You know that. If you've given birth, you really know that. Okay. So the water is referring to human birth, and then he went on to say, um, "But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when you say, when I say, you must be born again or born from above." The wind blows wherever it wants, and just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. It's as if Jesus were saying, Nicodemus, in order to experience the rich and satisfying life of my kingdom, to receive my help for today and real hope for tomorrow, you've got to be born from above. Jesus said, And don't try to figure it out, because there is no understandable, rational explanation for how that happens. You won't be able to figure it out. He said, in the same way that you can see, uh, you can't see the wind, but you can hear it and, and observe its effects in the trees, but you really don't know where it comes from or where it's going, so you don't have any idea how the birth from above happens, but you can see its results. That is to say, Jesus is telling us, you can become a new and different person. You can be helped. You don't have to stay the way you are. And you do that through being born from above. Now, Jesus says later in the dialogue, John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world that, that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Jesus was not preparing Nicodemus to go to heaven when he died, which is how Christians have often read and understood that verse. If you believe in Jesus, then when you die, you'll go to heaven. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. He was telling Nicodemus how to experience the rich and satisfying life of his kingdom that he was observing. Jesus was saying, when you come to me, and you believe in me, you surrender to me, you embrace me, you receive the birth from above that I've got, then you're going to receive the rich and satisfying life of my kingdom right here, right now. You won't even be able to see the kingdom until you do that. That's the door in. You're born physically, and now you need to be born spiritually. As I've taught you before, the most accurate translation for the words eternal life, according to N.T. Wright, one of the foremost theologians and scholars in the world today, would more accurately be the life of the age to come, not the life that we're going to get when we die. In the present, the life of the future invades us when we surrender to Jesus. We become a participant in the the blessings and benefit of the future age to come, right here, right now, the rich and satisfying life. That is eternal life, real life, the life of the kingdom. Jesus was not informing people how to get their ticket punched for heaven. He's inviting us to become new and different people right now. You don't have to stay the way you are, he said. You can change. And it starts with surrender, with believing, with coming to Jesus. He comes then to live in us in the Holy Spirit. You don't know where he comes from or where he goes, but you can see the effects in the same way you see the wind rustling in the trees. Don't go trying to figure it out, Jesus said cognitively, because there's no rational explanation. Just come. And he says, and when you do you can experience a powerful life change. In fact, it's like being born all over again. It's that dramatic. It's that powerful. It's that life-changing. It's that helpful. And Jesus says, now you can be part of the people who are changed, who are being changed, and then will continue to grow and change until the day I come back to fully establish my kingdom on the earth again, when you'll experience the final and total transformation." And if you happen to die before that takes place, Jesus said, "Uh, when I come back, you're going to come up out of the grave and then be radically changed. So there's hope whether we're alive or dead, (laughs) either way, in Christ. So we are changed as followers of Jesus. We are now being changed by his help and hope, and we will be changed totally and completely someday. That's shouting ground. Go ahead, you can shout. All right, there we go. Okay, let me wrap it up by saying this. The church, quite simply, is a group of people who have been changed, who are being changed, and are hopeful for the final and ultimate change by Jesus. They're just a group of people, ordinary, everyday, getting up, going to work and school, people whose lives have been touched by Jesus. We've experienced help from Jesus. Our, and our, our lives are now knit together. We've responded to his invitation to come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. We've taken his yoke upon us. He is now our good shepherd. He is our vine. We are his branches. If we remain in him, he encourages us that we can experience the rich and satisfying life that he intends for us to have. A life of healing and deliverance and forgiveness and freedom from worry and fear and anxiety. Restoration from what the enemy, the thief, has stolen and taken from us. A life of deep contentment, regardless of our circumstances, as chaotic and as as difficult and challenging as they might be. We can be deeply rooted and at peace in Jesus. All hell can be breaking loose and we're, we're settled. We have joy and peace. It's not a Pollyannish, praise the Lord, you know, like, oh, no. It's not putting a Christian bumper sticker over your life and saying, yeah, everything's fine. It's having a deep sense of settledness because Jesus has invaded our life and brings us hope and, and, and uh, empowers us with His presence. Hope that things don't have to stay the way they are. That we can actually become new and different people. And some of those things that we've identified is that the one thing we want to see changed can actually be changed. So here's my appeal. No matter what broad-brush category with which you identify, no need to change, no hope to change, tried with few results, don't know but don't know how, I'm on the season of roll right now and I'm changing. No matter where you're at, I would like you to... I'd invite you just to lean into Jesus over these next five weeks and just see how he causes at least that one area that you've already called out. Watch it grow and change. I'd love to hear your story. And and then we're going to celebrate life change on the 6th of October when we conduct a water baptism service, because it's one of the specific, measurable, and concrete ways that Jesus said for the church, here's a way that you celebrate change. Today, we're going to do that through taking the communion. Communion is Christ's invitation to partake of the the root for change, his his broken body and shed blood. And and when we partake of the bread and the cup, we're responding. Some of you may be doing that for the very first time with faith and confidence today. Others of you for the thousandth time, somewhere in between. But we're going to just experience a journey of life and change over the next five weeks together. Lord, we're just grateful that when we come to you, you don't throw us on the scrap heap and just say, figure it out for yourself. So we're just thankful, God, um, that you uh, that you offer us such incredible hope and and help. And I, I pray, God, that today, no matter where uh, we are in this room, uh, Lord, on the journey of, of profound change, hopeful, helpless, uh, desiring change but not able, wherever we're at, Lord, on that spectrum, that you would come through the Holy Spirit and uh, touch us, change us. Bring the life of your kingdom, Lord, to each one of us in the ways that you know we need. And even when, Lord, we're out of touch with what we need, we we say, come, Holy Spirit, have your way. Cause us to grow. And now, Lord, as we give our hearts to you in worship and in the offering and the sharing of communion, we just say, uh, take our lives. Uh, We come to you with these few simple, humble offerings, and we say, take them for what they are, tokens that we We want to make a difference for you. We love you. In your name, amen.